Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 to 18. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we're going to be talking about freedom, this whole idea of freedom. And I know that in our country in particular, freedom is very important, continues to be a theme that echoes in every political arena. But it's also a spiritual idea. It's also something that we work with if you've ever gone to therapy or you've ever sort of gone through any deep process of personal growth you know that freedom continues to be a theme within that context as well. And there are always different constraints upon our lives, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter how old we are, there are things that are in our lives that we cannot control, whether they be relational struggles or financial struggles or health struggles, there's always something, right, that we're up against. We think back to when we were younger, maybe those took on one shade of color, and then as we change and grow older, they take on another shade of color, but they're always there, and they're always present. And these challenges can push us in a way that we start to think that we'll never be free, right? We start to sort of create this freedom idea, this idea that freedom only exists when the constraints around us have been released. And we could perhaps spend a lifetime waiting for all of the stars around us to align and for all of the things to come together and for all of the challenges to go away before we begin to believe that we have the capacity to be free. Because there's always something that gets in our way of that, right? We think, well, I can't do this because I don't have enough money. Or I can't really accomplish the things that I wanted to do because my body isn't as cooperative as I wanted it to be. Or I can't host this particular meal because I've got challenges with this particular person. And all of those things are very real, right? All of those things are very real. But freedom, I wonder if what the text can help us to understand today is how freedom can push us through those things 
and help us to have, in fact, a different perspective around the challenges that we face. Because, in fact, what the text help us, helps us to see today is that there are times when, in fact, everything does align. And see, even when that happens, we still don't really reach that idea of freedom. And we see that in our text today, where suddenly in the Gospel of Luke, the right person arrives at the right time. If you think about these 10 lepers, these 10 folks who had been waiting to be healed, they were isolated from the rest of their culture, right? They were not able to participate in the different cultural events, the different cultural feasts. They were definitely on the outside. They needed to have some form of healing in order to be able to join in to what everybody else was doing. And so surely here, the stars align, it seems. Jesus enters and proclaims that their freedom has arrived, right? He heals them. He sees that they're suffering from this sickness, and he heals them. And then the question that the text begins to ask us is what then, right? When everything that you've wanted all of a sudden shows up in front of you, what then? Are you able to live the life that you had always hoped and dreamed that you would live? Or still then will there be another constraint? Still then will there be something that gets in the way? And so Jesus instructs them to go to the priest, which in fact they have to do. That's part of the healing process. So they need to go to the priest. But after that, then, we see this very interesting piece where they've done all of the things that are necessary for them to do. And they've now entered into this landscape of freedom. They've completed all of the duty that is around them. And now they're in a place where they have freedom. Not just freedom from, right? So we often think about freedom as freedom from. Freedom from our oppressors or freedom from those around us or freedom from a disease. But this is freedom to, right? Freedom towards something. What do they have the ability to move into? What do they have now the freedom to make a choice towards? How can they put their agency within the world in a way that reflects who they are? That is really the question that I think, or one of the questions I should say, that this text is beginning to ask us. When all of the stars align and everything then begins to go in a way in which you always hoped that it would, what then? Because see, what Jesus is starting to help illuminate for us is that is actually where we begin to see what freedom looks like. And so we see this one person begin to make a choice, begin to move towards Jesus, and to offer thanks and praise. That's the, that's the phrase that we hear, thanks and praise. And Jesus offers this reflection for us. He's not doing shaming there, although it potentially sounds like it, where he says, you know, where are the other nine? Where they did not all of them receive healing, but only this one came back, this foreigner? And really, I think what that gives us the opportunity to see is this deep noticing, right? This deep noticing about what it means to be able to operate in freedom when all of the constraints around you have suddenly sort of been dissolved. 
For this leper, for this man who was sick and returns to Jesus to offer thanks and praise, there is a deep sense of permission that he is able to be present in the world without apology as his full self. And that, I think, begins to illustrate this picture of what freedom is. I think it's important because if we think back to the last Reformation, the one that, of course, Luther brought to us in 1517, and two years ago we celebrated the big anniversary around that, um, and we're coming up on Reformation Sunday, which is why when we reflect a little bit on the work of the Reformation during this time of October, um, I sort of have this dream that maybe on Reformation Sunday, everybody will dress up like Martin Luther. I think, I think we should maybe bring that back. Um, in any case, the first Reformation was kind of this idea about freedom from, right? What were we free from? So a lot of it was freedom from this constraint around paying for the sacraments. And that whole idea, I know, is my very mind-blowing to us, but is very real thing that happened in the 16th century and beyond and before, I should say. But it was really this idea of freedom from. What were we free from? And Luther was all about freedom. But now I, I really think, and I'll keep saying this over again, that we're, we're moving into a time of a second reformation. And this second reformation that I think that we're moving into is really about freedom towards. What are we free to? If all of this stuff that we believe that happened is actually true and it's strong enough for us to put our weight down on it and we can live in the gravity of this reality of the gospel, then what are we free to? How can we put our agency within the world? What choices then do we make? And that is what this second reformation I believe, is coming to be about. Because once we release all of these fears around the judgment of God, sort of acting out of our fear that God is going to judge us, and once we release our fear that we need to sort of cajole other folks into seeing the world the way that we do, that was kind of something that we inherited, right, out of the first Reformation, then we really start instead, instead to ask this question, who am I and why am I here and what can I do? What purpose do I have? And how does my faith serve that purpose? And how does my faith serve the world? And those are really the questions that folks who are involved in the Second Reformation, that's very early on in its seeds, it's just kind of being seeded right now, but the folks who are involved in this Second Reformation are beginning to ask those questions. How does faith make sense in the world in a meaningful and beautiful way? How does it change the face of the world? And that's really what I think that part of the questions that these texts for us are asking today, both Psalm 139 and this piece from the Gospel of Luke. Because those that have been healed, they have this opportunity and this duty to respond. They respond to the priest. They have to do this. That's part of their cultural obligation. But then, after that moment, they are free. They're free to make a choice. They're free to put themselves in the world in a different way. And that's the beauty of the one that returns. Not just in what he does, 
He does offer thanks and praise, but that he does something. He makes a choice that is completely outlandish. It's beyond duty. You see, Jesus didn't instruct him to give thanks. Jesus didn't instruct him to return. And so this choice that he makes out of freedom is a way that reflects that now that he has received this healing, he is able to move forward in a different way in the world. Free to enter into the world without apology. That is what freedom offers us. And it's the same sort of thing that we see in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a wonderful text. It's one of those texts that we should all try to memorize and have in our heads um, at all times. It's just a foundational text to our faith and so beautiful. And it gives us the foundation for the beauty of the human person and the way that we were all created to live with sort of purpose and meaning and the ways in which every person is intimately known in the heart of God. Every person is known in the heart of God. And the other thing that Psalm 139 helps us to remember, and this is very hard for us to get our minds wrapped around in this world of um, sacred and secular, but Psalm 139 really paves the way for understanding that there is no place that the human life can go that is not holy, that you just don't have that option. That everywhere you go, there, there too is the Spirit of God. And Psalm 139 says that in ways that, that preaching just can't compete with. It's so wonderful and it's so well known. Because at the end of the day, the question that Psalm 139 asks us is similar to that which we heard in the Gospel of Luke. Because if you get to the end of Psalm 139, what you see is that there's this question that the psalmist asks. And it's almost like if all of these things are true, right? If all of this foundation about the reality of the sacredness of human life is true, then the question that the psalmist asks at the very end, and those who have been a part of the psalm Bible study know that we talk about this whole idea that every psalm has a pivot point. Every psalm has a point in which the psalmist is sort of looking in one direction and then the psalmist turns and looks in the other direction. And it's one of the great things that we have going on in the psalms. It never moves in one direction. It's like we go here and then we go there. And then we go there and then we go here. And the psalmist does that. Uh, it's one of those patterns that we are able to do because it's only in poetry and in art that we can gather up all of those ideas together in one, Right? Art and poetry allows us to do that in a way that no other kind of genre does. So that's what the psalmist is able to do. And so you see this foundation about the power of the human uh, presence within the world because of the ways in which we're known by the reality of God. And then the end, which is, then search me and know me. What should I do? You see those, that paradox? I mean, in the early part of Psalm 139, the psalmist is saying, you know everything about me. Every day of my life is written in your book, right? That sounds pretty predestination-y, pretty close the door. Nope, psalm pivots, right? 
It's one side, and then the psalmist pivots and says, therefore, if all of these things are true, search me and know me and lead me in the way of everlasting, right? That's all about human agency, all about the ways in which we put ourselves forth into the world. So the psalmist is always doing both and, always, always, always. We always get these pivot pieces within the psalmist. But the idea is that we're free, right? And that it's freedom to be within the world without apology. Without apology. In the book of Joy, which I think I've referenced a few times maybe in the last year or so, Um, it's, this is a book, I highly recommend it, if you haven't read it, it's delightful, a nice kind of before you go to bed kind of a read. Um, it's a really long and lovely conversation between the Archbishop Tutu and, um, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and they meet, uh, in the Dalai Lama's home and have this really wonderful, uh, sort of week-long conversation Uh, that is facilitated and um, recorded by the the, uh, editor of this book. Um, And it's just a really lovely uh, experience to go through this. Uh, But I want to read a piece of this uh, story um, because this whole idea of how do we live into our freedom continues to be a question that all of us on every angle of being human, you know, from every culture, we're always still trying to figure this out. And this is really our greatest invitation. It's built out of the foundation of God, but it is our greatest invitation. And so this is um, just a little bit out of this conversation. And this is uh, the Archbishop Tutu speaking. He says, I've sometimes joked and said, God doesn't know very much math. Because when you give to others, it should be that you are subtracting from yourself. But in this incredible kind of way, I've certainly found that to be the case that so many times you gave, and in fact, it seems like you are making space for more to be given to you. And there's a very physical example of this. The Dead Sea in the Middle East receives fresh water, but it has no outlet So it doesn't pass the water out. It receives this beautiful water from the rivers, and the water just goes dank. It just goes bad. And that's why it is the Dead Sea. It receives, but it does not give. And we are made that way too. I mean, we receive and we must give. And in the end, generosity is the best way of becoming more and more joyful. We've been brought up to think that we have to obey the laws of the jungle, eat or be eaten. And we are ruthless in our competitiveness, so much so now that stomach ulcers are status symbols. They show just how hard we work. We work hard not only to supply our needs and the needs of our families, but we are trying to outdo the other. We have downplayed the fact that actually our created nature is made for complementarity. We have become dehumanized and debased. And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, 
We must learn to live together as sisters and brothers, or we will perish together as fools. And then he goes on to say this last bit. It's just the truth. You can't survive on your own. If you say that you are going to be totally selfish, in next to no time, the person who is totally selfish goes under. You need other people in order to be human. And that's why when they want to punish you, they put you in solitary confinement because you can't flourish without other human beings. They give you things that you cannot give yourself, no matter how much money you have. And so we speak of Ubuntu. A person is a person through other persons. And there there must have been some people who said, ah, what a primitive way of thinking that is. And then the archbishop says this. He says, it is the most fundamental law of our being. We flout that, and we flout it at our peril. Lead me in the way everlasting, the psalmist leads us to. Remember, last week I read the quote that if we live our lives aligned with the honorable harvest, then the earth would last forever. And is this not the same thing that the psalmist is pleading for? Is this not also what the man who comes back in Luke is illustrating as he lives this life of reciprocity? I think perhaps in this second Reformation, our greatest challenge, or one of our greatest challenges, is not to silence the text, but to allow it to speak to us in ways that we have never heard before. To allow it to speak to us in ways that we have never heard before, and to free us, and to lead us into that place where we too can enter the world fully and without apology, because that was the example that we were given in the person of Jesus. In fact, that is who Jesus is. Jesus was free, fully free, free to live in the world without apology, free to release his very being without fear. Friends, in this world that is so filled with fear, we have texts that can anchor us, and that can give us the foundation to move forward without apology. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for these texts and how they speak to us. Open our hearts and minds that they would continue to speak throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand. Mm -hmm.